Hey everyone, welcome back to the Biblical World Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College. I hope your summer is going well. We've got another episode here that we're republishing from OnScript, our other podcast that we recorded a couple years ago, and think it's relevant to this audience, and hope you enjoy. We've got Dan Piosky here talking about how biblical writers access the past, and he talks a lot about the importance of the land for transmitting memory. Uh, it's, a, I think, a really important and a creative point that he's making here, so I hope you enjoy this. And as always, um, if you can give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or, or wherever you listen, we'd appreciate it. Enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to OnScript. I am here today with Dan Piosky who is Assistant Professor of Religious Studies at Georgia Southern University. He did his PhD at Princeton Theological Seminary. He's the author of David's Jerusalem Between Memory and History, and also he's the author of Memory in a Time of Prose, Studies in Epistemology, Hebrew Scribalism, and the Biblical Past, published by Oxford University Press in 2018. And we're going to be focusing a little bit more on that book, um, but we'll probably talk about his... Uh, older book on um, David's Jerusalem, and maybe touch on the book he's going to write next. So, Dan, thanks for uh, taking the time to talk with OnScript. Yeah, thank you, Matt, for having me. It's a privilege. Uh, I'm excited to be here. Yeah, well, great. Um, well, first of all, I just want to say that I really enjoyed uh, reading uh, your books, and I'm, I'm really impressed by the breadth of knowledge that you have in things historical, biblical, archaeological, and... Uh, and otherwise. So, so tell me a bit about your kind of interest in history as a kid. Yeah. Uh, like I'm, I'm, this must have started before your PhD program. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I think in some sense, uh, some from a farm in the Midwest, up in Minnesota. Um, and one thing you find if you drive around, this is of course in other parts of the world as well, um, are these old farmsteads, abandoned buildings, um, and a real sense of kind of even just immigrant communities, too, that are still kind of present in these rural communities where, you know, here's a German uh, community, here's a Scandinavian community of some, um, and that ties to the past, and you wonder who or where you came from. Um, and so I think there was a sense of history getting pressed upon me pretty early. Um, and then when I went to college, um, you know, I came to college in the early, uh, early 2000s, and there's all these amazing debates going on around history. Um, in the late 90s, early 2000s, you had... You know, the, I don't like this terminology, I think it's kind of silly, but the, the maximalist and the minimalist debates uh, were really kind of raging at that point in time, right when I hit college. And so I had this native uh, interest in history, um, and coming to college at that precise time, uh, I think it just reinforced kind of some of these interests. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, and so th- these... Uh so you mentioned growing up in farm country in the Midwest. What state did you grow up in? Minnesota, yeah. Minnesota. Yep. Okay, so cold, cold. <laughs> frozen Minnesota. Yeah, you got it. All um, and, and what kind of farming? Did, did you grow up on a farm? I did, or yeah. in farming? Okay, um, what, what kind of farm Yeah, it was, was a family it? farm. Um, they sold the animals in the early 1980s, uh, so it was mostly crops. Uh, green Giant mainly, so please buy Green Giant. Uh, it's a shameless plug for Green Giant. Um, we grow for Green Giant uh, to this day. I worked for them for a while. Um, so yeah, in that kind of uh, that farm. What, what, what specific crops? Peas and sweet corn. 
Okay. Yeah. Not lima beans? Not lima beans. <laughs> okay, because that's my association with green giant is yeah. the corn and succotash, we call it in Pennsylvania. Do you call it that? Uh, yeah, I think, I think okay. we do, yeah. That's so nice. lima beans and corn, for those who don't yeah, where know. Where they grow lima beans? This is a good question. Um, you know, in Minnesota, we have like three months of the year where we can grow stuff. Right. And so you get in the Short, ground. intense growing seasons. <laughs> yeah. You grow amazing things. It's, it's wonderful. Yeah. Great soil. And, um, then you, and then you gather around the hearth all winter and tell stories, and that's, <laughs> exactly. that's where the interest yes. in prose came from? There you from? go. I like that, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's good. That's good. Well, um, uh, so, and, and do you come from a, a religious background? Is that, was that where the Bible factored yeah, so, in all this? You know, if you're from Minnesota, you kind of, you're born Lutheran or at least culturally Lutheran, right? Yeah, so you have um, to opt out of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. There's a form you get. Not opt in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and uh, what's also pretty common, so my mom's Roman Catholic and my dad's Lutheran. And they made, you know, after a great theological discerning, they decided that if the child was a boy, he'd be Lutheran, girl, Catholic. Oh, really? <laughs> You're serious? That's I'm how, serious. Okay. I'm, I, I'm not serious about the theological discernment. But, so that's what they decided. So I ended up, yeah, uh, being baptized Lutheran. Um, but like I say, if you're from that part of the world, so much of your culture is kind of informed by Lutheran understanding still. Um, and so that's kind of the framework. And even we can talk more about that perhaps in the books too. I think that's an overarching sensibility of, of thinking about the Bible and, you know, going back in time, it's, it's both Lutheran philosophers, theologians, biblical scholars who are kind of asking certain questions that I'm at an age now where you kind of take stock of your tradition in a particular way, right? And, and find yourself in that tradition, whether you want to or not, you're part of a tradition, right? Um, the good parts and the bad parts. Yeah. Yeah. And, and did you, uh, have an interest in the Bible as a, a youngster as well? Yeah, or? I did. Yeah. I did. Okay. Yeah. Um, and maybe it's part of that Lutheran heritage, right? Um, but the Bible always just fascinated me. Um, and there's something about, you know, if you want to participate in political conversations, cultural conversations, even to this day, even in secular context, the Bible's still really important. Yeah, it's um, still quoted on the campaign trail. <laughs> exactly. By right. all, I mean, most candidates, yeah, right? Yeah, right, right. And I teach at a public university, and, you know, it's uh, non-confessional, but, man, the Bible still really matters in all sorts of interesting ways. And so... So for me, yeah, just kind of a, as a locus of um, just kind of fascination. Yeah, in some ways inexplicable, I suppose, but in some ways very yeah. concrete and real. Yeah, and I should say that the reason that Dan and I are talking about place and the Bible and history is because that's the kind of nexus Correct. Of, in, yes. your, nice. in your book. Nice segue. So, I like that. Yeah, so um, let's talk first about your book, David's Jerusalem, um, published by uh, Rutledge in 2015. And um, it's called David's Jerusalem Between Memory and History. What, what was your main objective and, and thesis in that book? Um, what so, were you arguing? Yeah, so what am I arguing? I'm arguing, um, or at the very least, I'm trying to think, what do we do as historians of the Bible, right? Um, what is history when it's applied to biblical studies? Um, so the first chapter kind of tried, lays, lays out some of the problems and possibilities of how we think about what history even is, theorizing history, right? Even the philosophy of history and trying to take those conversations and bring them into our, our guild of biblical studies. Um, and when doing so and reading kind of the biblical stories about here and now David's Jerusalem, realizing, or at least I make the argument that what they're up to is something different than what I'm doing as a historian. Um, and that to me is just really fascinating. What am I doing as I think about the past, and what were they doing as they thought about the past and told stories? And I found, uh, you know, a pretty noticeable gap between those two things. So that's the, the memory and history kind of uh, subtitle there. Uh, and, and just on that point, um, you note that you have in 
at least some Greek historians, like Thucydides, the, an explicit reflection on the act of writing history. So that's kind of handy. But in, in the biblical material, you don't get those explicit reflections, right? So you have to deduce it. You have to right. yeah. and triangulate. So, yeah, what are they doing when they're talking about the past, right? And again, this kind of comes out of the debates of the early 2000s as biblical scholars are really kind of in these fierce uh, arguments and conversations about about the Bible and history. Um, and, you know, I think we are under a spell. We are enchanted in some way by this idea of history, right? Um, and this gets into something of the second book as well, but, you know, even in the first book, uh, Yosef Yoshami, who's a, a Jewish historian, um, he really gets at this. Uh, he, he reflects on what he's doing as a Jewish historian and how it's a, it's a break with how Jewish individuals thought about the past before. And he really has this, you know, his... It's a series of lectures, and in his last lecture, it's very kind of melancholic about how he thinks about what he's doing as a Jewish historian and what connections that has with, uh, you know, his community in the past. And you can really read it as a kind of... Why is he melancholic? Because he sees that what he is doing is something very different than what the rabbis used to do when they talked about the past, right? And he wonders, why is there this break? And what does it mean for him? Um, Like, why do we need to go like kind of be intentional and, and deliberate about a move to engage with the past as opposed to just it living in the yeah, tradition exactly, that we're right. part of. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And what does that mean for us? And so, so yeah, so the, between the memory and history bit, uh, I think plays into that. The David Jerusalem part is on the one hand, um, as you think about a dissertation, you want to take something that's, uh, interesting and perhaps controversial and Jerusalem during the time of David was that in the early 2000s and still in some sense is, and so I wanted to, you know, kind of address that. But what's also more important is the idea of place, as we mentioned earlier. Um, the Bible is uh, tricky when it comes to how we think about what they're doing historically, right? Um, the texts are written and rewritten over a long period of time. But what do we think about the history of a place? Uh, because places persist. They endure, right, uh, in ways not true of other phenomena. And so doing a history of place, I think, allows us to um, make certain moves historically and think about, because, you know, Jerusalem's been there both in the ancient world and our world. And we see it archaeologically and the biblical authors are talking about it. And so a place lends itself to historical analysis in ways that I think are really fruitful. Yeah, and that was one of the things I found really helpful in your, your um, both your books really is bringing place into the both theoretical and practical discussion of uh, thinking about history writing. And, and just to put some flesh on that, I think, um, flesh, that wasn't the right metaphor <laughs> for talking about place, but yeah, in, right. in any case, the land has a body. Yeah, right. Um, so the, in the past, what, when people talk about, like, okay, how did, you know, the, to take the question of your second book, um, what did biblical writers know about Iron Age Israel, and how did they know it? Um, I think in the past, people talked primarily in terms of, you know, how might oral tradition have been handed down? Um, what were scribal practices uh, in terms of the relationship between text and memory? And um, and you're saying yes to that stuff, but also uh, we, we're for, there's a glaring omission here. What do you? Uh, there's there's this gigantic mound of a prior city sitting there, and surely that would have been part of the way that people remembered stuff, um, or maybe not a prior city, an enduring city. 
So they've got the, there are land-based reasons why they, um, or means by which they're connected to the past. Right. So could, could you unpack that a little bit and yeah, explain how place factors? Yeah, and so, you know, I think one of, one of the dangers of reading these ancient texts is uh, to disembody them, to, um, you know, there's this kind of emphasis on text as text, and we read text in a various way, and we think about books, right, because we are a product of hyperliteracy and, and, and wonderful things like that in the 20th and 21st centuries. But in the ancient world, texts, you know, obviously function much differently. Um, and so for me, it's trying to root these texts in an actual landscape, right? that's at least partially available to us via archaeology. Um, and so I think we can actually spend some time in the landscapes of ancient Israel and Judah and ask the question, what were folks experiencing? What did they see? What did they touch? What did they feel? Um, and then to read the biblical stories through that lens and to see what's being refracted, what's being obscured. Um, I think it's just really fascinating because it, like, it, it allows us to get some insights into this question, you know, the fancy word is epistemology, but what knowledge do they have about the past and how do they get that knowledge? And I think one of the ways that they got the knowledge was not, I'm going to go to the library and check out 15 books and read about it. It was, I'm going mm -hmm. to experience certain phenomena that are in the yeah. landscape, tangible right. objects. And, yeah, and it wasn't just, I'm going to talk to the town uh, storyteller, you know, and, and ask that person what we know about the past because, yeah, you can go look at it. Um, so it, just to jump ahead as well to the second book, um, the, your, I thought your analysis of Gath was very interesting. Sure. So um, biblical Gath, Tel Asafi now, um, is, was a huge site in the ancient world. To give our listeners a sense of how prominent this, yeah, I mean, and there's been some really interesting uh, news last summer even. So this is still very oh, okay. recent where, you know, there might be Iron One um, evidence of a really massive city as well. So we think Iron Age uh, 2A, so, you know, late 10th, 9th century. But now it may be that Gath was yeah. prominent even before then. Um, so just a real quick yeah. for reader, or listeners that don't know this, um, Iron 2A is David Solomon yeah, kind of... Time period, yeah. So, and iron won't be just preceding that. So, Saul and the judges, so to speak, in the Bible. Um, anyway, so Gath is a, a prominent city at this point in time. And what's really important for the way you know I structured my my book is that Gath gets destroyed pretty early on, and that's significant because if the biblical stories are not contemporaneous witnesses, and I don't think they are, and we can get into that in a second. They're written, you know, a generation, two generations, three generations later, however we want to unpack that. Um, if Gath does get destroyed early, and it's still appearing in these stories, then that's really interesting, because How do why? they know it? How do they know yeah, it, right? Yeah. Um, and that gets into some of the memory bit as well. So Gath, though, is is really important. A number of scholars have talked about Gath uh, in this way. Uh, it's, a, it's a really significant city, and then it gets destroyed early. And so if there's any memories of it in the Bible, those memories are likely early. Um, and, and so just um, to unpack the point about the stuff being written later, so you make the <clears throat> case that scribal, scribalism, the, the kind of infrastructure that you would need to write prose about the past or, you know, write these stories such as we see in Samuel, that infrastructure wasn't there until 8th, 7th century. And so, um, whereas Gath was destroyed in, what, the 9th century? Yeah, Under Hazael? Yep. So, uh, you know, there's that gap there. So, it provides a nice case study because there's a gap between when it was destroyed, when it was written down, right. when those stories were written down. And I want to be precise about this point because I, I'm, I take a lot of heat for this. Um, 
you know, knowledge of the alphabet is even Bronze Age, right? So the alphabet, we have inscriptions in the alphabet, the Bronze Age. Uh, the, the Hebrew, proto-Hebrew yeah, alphabet, Yeah, exactly, right? right? So okay. the point, they had the technology, and I don't dispute the fact that they could have written prose stories down earlier, right? Um, but you need a lot of um, factors to come in play to write prose down, because writing prose, and by prose I mean narrative storytelling, right? Not poetry. Um, to write prose down is actually a pretty late phenomenon across cultures, not just in ancient Israel, but elsewhere as well. Um, and so for me, prose, um, I think of it as a 9th century phenomenon at the earliest, right? Um, as, I, as I make an argument in my book, based on inscriptions and uh, some other external factors. And so it's going to really come into its own in the 8th, 7th centuries, as, as, as you say. And that's great, you know, it's a great case study then because Gathas is right earlier. And so how does it appear in these later stories? Yeah, and, and part of what I like uh, what you did about, with Gath is that you, you make the point that here you have this, this huge destroyed city. Yeah. Um, so 120 acres, something like that, 125. It's, yeah, you know, we always massive. use dunams, of course. Oh, yeah. and, and hectares. Dunams, hectares. Yeah, right. Okay, so it's, it's but big. Yeah, you're right. You're and, in the and, ballpark. And, um, and perhaps the biggest city in the Levant, in southern Levant during the time of David Solomon. So it's, it's no small player. And it's right down the road from Jerusalem. So they're staring at this thing, practically, um, um, up the uh, Ela Valley uh, toward Jerusalem. So it's, it's unavoidable. And how does it carry memories of the past? Like, how, how is that transmitted? So this is the question, right? Um, why do we find, re- we shouldn't find references to Gath in the Bible, mm. but we do. Mm. Um, if, why, sh- why, why shouldn't we? Well, if we, if we think that the, you know, these texts are being written down as contemporaneous reports of what's happening in their own time. Uh, period, right, right. If so, they're only products of their time. If they're only products of their time. Yeah, got it. Then it should just be reflecting 8th, 7th century realities, mm-hmm. right? Um, which is some argument scholars make from time to time in biblical studies, right? The texts only reflect the time that they're written. At moments, of course, is very true. And every text is going to reflect bits and pieces of the time it's written. But what I want to make a claim there is that with Gath, we have something that's earlier. And the question is, well, how is that the case? And, you know, there's lots of ways of thinking about that. But for me, and here again, I'm kind of, you know, using this word epistemology at the epistemological level, the level of knowledge, how do we account for this knowledge? I think memory is the best way of, of, of thinking about that. Um, in other words, memories of Gath are being passed down. And it's likely because, as you mentioned, there's this big ruined city in the distance. And that city and its ruins are preserving memories in ways not true of other phenomena that are more fleeting or that do not endure. So memory and place are being connected there in a particular way. Right, so it's triggering memories. You got it. And, and that's parallel to the way people are talking about the way texts are used as well. So texts, not in the sense of, i got to write this, like, um, I've there's a story I need to write down, but rather this, the text is there to aid memory uh, so that you can tell it orally. And in a similar way, the, the tell of Gath is there to, and, and it function, functionally aids the memory as people are passing down stories. So what are, you know, people are probably familiar with Goliath of Gath, but, but just remind us of some of the ways that Gath shows up in the biblical stories to give us a sense of its prominence. Yeah. So, I mean, it, you know, it shows up most prominently in the uh, in the Samuel uh, narratives dealing with David. Um, of course, Goliath is uh, is a main figure there in First in, in Samuel seventeen. Um, 
But later on, we really find these interesting stories where David flees from Saul in 1 Samuel 21 uh, and later 1 Samuel 27 and goes to the city of Gath. Yeah, what's he doing? What's he doing there? <laughs> like He's gone a whole bunch of different directions, right? Uh, but he goes to Maybe Gath. trying to reconcile with Goliath's family? Yeah, exactly, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah okay. he's making amends. David's yeah. not that type of person to make amends usually, though. So, um, so David's going to these places, and there's a really intimate connection between David and Gath. Um, and then later on, we find that um, a number of mercenaries, or however you want to identify these individuals, um, are named Gittites. They're from Gath, who are evidently living in Jerusalem with David. These are his kind of fighters that have been alongside of him. And during Absalom's coup, David's outnumbered, outflanked, but he has his old grizzled veterans from his previous days, and a lot of them happen to be Gittites. Yeah. And so and once Gittite again... Gittite is from Gath. Yeah, from Gath. Yeah. Thank you. Individuals from Gath. And so you have these very strange stories where Gath is playing an inordinate role in David's life. Yeah. Um, and I think fascinating ways. Yeah. Now, one way of reading that is that um, the Bible's embarrassed about that and wants to suppress it. Okay. Um, but you suggested something a bit more nuanced about the relationship between Gath and Israel. Um, so Gath is a Philistine city. We tend to, if, if you refract everything through the David and Goliath episode, you think it's pure hostility. Um, of course, as those stories are going to be embarrassing because it's it's supposed to be hostility. But right. what's your yeah? So I think that you know if you read closely, um, yes, there's certainly animosity between. Uh, Philistine populations from Gath and uh, and biblical stories. I don't want to deny that. But if you read, there's actually a lot of interesting interactions between populations that are identified by biblical authors as Philistines and uh, as Judahites or Israelites. Um, that they're living alongside one another, that they're interacting even in times peacefully. Um, they're working together at moments. And so you can even look at the Samson narratives, right? Um, of course, in David material, uh, even in Genesis, where, you know, Abimelech's lands are, quote-unquote, Philistine, and Abraham and Sarah are hanging out there, right? So you have these other stories where it's not always violent and, uh, and warlike. And I think that's also reflected in the material culture, where you find a lot of interactions between these populations, which to me suggests that, you know, flu- uh, borders are much more fluid, identities are much more fluid, and we have to be very careful not to you know, impose our modern constructs of both identity, ethnic identity, and political borders onto these texts because they didn't exist then, right? Um, and I think that also kind of helps us see some of these stories in a different light. Yeah, and do you think um, some people theorized that um, the, part of the reason David's there is to, like, you know, get some of the iron technology from <laughs> from the, uh, the yeah. Philistines. Do you put any stock in... in no, you actually the, find more iron smelting technology in the highlands than you do in the lowlands. Okay, um, so probably not. I mean, the, don't, the lowland areas of the Philistines uh, have a lot of wealth. I think they're wealthier than highland populations, right? Um, but technology, I don't, you know, I don't know. There's, there's that one reference in, in First Samuel, of course, that the Philistines were able to have iron technology. But I think no, I don't put a lot of stock. Yeah. In yeah. Okay. <laughs> in short. Yeah. Well, I mean, on the interaction point yeah. that you were making earlier, uh, I mentioned to you earlier that I did a, a week-long dig at Tel Bernah, and which is only a few kilometers from Gath, and you can see it from there. And it's, it was just so striking to me that uh, when I when I looked across the the valley to um, to Gath, that of course Israelites and Philistines are going to be grazing their sheep and cattle in the same areas and have lots of interaction that must have been peaceful. Um, yeah, amicable. And so it, if you just read it through the lens of the wars, and I think 
the, the Bible even offers more than that, but we, we tend to, to read it through the lens of just the big battles, right. and then you, you kind you of... you miss some other things if you do yeah, that, right? Yeah, quite a bit. Um, so I just want to switch gears here to do a speed round All if right. you're up for that. Yeah, man, let's do it. Um, so the idea is just a, a short, you know, five-second answer. Okay. Uh, not reflective. <laughs> no reflection. Um, good, good to know. <laughs> the most significant find in archaeology in the last 10 years. Last 10 years. All right. That, that, you know, in the kind of uh, carries significance for our reading of the Bible. Okay. Wow. Or, or, not, or in yeah. that world, biblical world. Oh, that's a good one, Matt. Um, shoot. I'm trying to think in a good five-second clip. Um, you know, naturally, I go to Gath and, and, and think about all mm-hmm. other excavations that have been uh, in the size of Gath and so on and so forth. Um, it can be a structure. Yeah, right. I mean, the temptation is always go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem yeah. is, of course, fraught with, uh, yeah. uh, you know, controversy, to say the least. Okay, what's one from there, then, last 10 years? You know, in the last 10 years, um, Elat Mazar has made the claim that um, she has uncovered David's palace. This is, you know, I think problematic in some ways, in many ways, of correlating the Bible with archaeology immediately. Um, but it looks like something's there, <laughs> right? Uh, early Iron Age, you know, uh, structures are there. And for me, you know, Jerusalem existed during this period in time. It was not just a figment of our imagination. It's not a, it's not a Camelot sort of thing where yeah. it's just completely made up, right? Yeah. Um, there's ding, a ding, ding. All right. Okay, sorry. Okay. Um, how do you solve a problem like Maria? <laughs> how do you solve a problem like Maria? Um, get rid of the Nazis. Yeah, okay. Well, that's always good. Um, so uh, this, this is a new question. We're here okay. at, at SBL yeah, AAR, the annual meeting here in San Diego. And there's a, we're in the book hall where there's tons of books around us. Yeah. And I, I, I chose two books at random. Okay. And I'm wondering I'm if scared, you could give them an endorsement. <laughs> so yeah. I'm not going to tell you anything about them j- yeah. except the title. Okay. And, and I want to just hear a, a little endorsement. Okay. Okay. Romans Disarmed. Romans Disarmed. Um, one of the uh, <laughs> Romans disarmed. <laughs> uh, a seductive tale of allure uh, of Paul's journeys uh, abroad and his desire to go to Rome. Okay, fantastic. Okay, the next title is Not Scattered or Confused. <laughs> um, the exact opposite of all graduate students here. Okay, well, that's good. Yeah. All right, good endorsements. Thanks. Um, uh, have you had a chance to wander the book hall yet? Just briefly, yeah. Okay, what, what are some books that you think uh, we should watch out for? Um, oh, that's good. Um, you know, there's, of course, I'm going to give you like some non-biblical answers, uh, but Paul Cosman's uh, History of Time in a Seleucid Empire uh, with Harvard University Press, I think, is a, a really exciting book that's, uh, uh, I think it was out last year, in fact, and it caught my eye briefly. Um, what are some other books? Uh, you know, Bill Schneiderwin's book on the finger of the scribe um, just came out with Oxford University Press. Um, I'm excited to read that. I've not yet read it, but it looks really good. Um, he's, yeah, so those are two quick answers. Excellent. What's the um, most significant book in biblical studies in the last 50 years? Oh, Matt, that's a, that's a good one. Um, off the cuff, you know, I have to go with Frank Moore Cross, Canaanite uh, myth and Hebrew epic. Yeah. Uh, but Alter's biblical narrative is a close second for me. Yeah. Okay. Um, have you ever uh, brought Tupperware to an SBL reception? <laughs> no, but I am going to steal that idea. Thank you for giving it to yeah. me. Oh, is there are a lot of uh, receptions here yes. at SBL with good yeah. food and yeah. uh, just a, as an idea. I don't endorse it, but yeah. it's it's an option. Um, okay. 
this is a joke. <laughs> Good. Thanks for letting uh, me know. So, that time. so what do you what do you what happens if you boil a funny bone? What happens, Matt? It becomes laughing stock. Nice, nice. That's humorous. Yeah, you got that one on the plane over, didn't you? I don't know. I, I, no, I got no. it from, uh, from my wife, actually. Nice. Good for you. Okay. Um, do you have a favorite joke that you want to tell? You know, you know, Matt, I'm from the upper climbs of the Midwest where... You don't have time to joke? Where you stare into the, into the fire, into the hearth, and, and you try to last for nine months in the wintertime. Yeah. Um, that's not a joke, is it? <laughs> no, that's not a joke. Yeah. People are freezing to death. Yeah, thank you. So, no, I don't have a good joke at the top of my Okay, that's sorry, fine. Um, I really like so you know that one. W- Style of music and artists I would find on your playlist? Yeah. Um, you know, I like, uh, I like indie. Yeah. Um, Lana Del Rey, um, Grizzly Bear. Okay. Uh, yeah, Bon Iver. Um, but I also like, you know, I'll give you the classical answers because I want to be sophisticated, of course, right? <laughs> um, you don't have to be. And I come out of Lutheran tradition, so of course it's Bach and... Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of those great kind of Lutheran composers that um, where you kind of kind of feel that yeah. tradition. Yeah, Bach was, I think, one of Minnesota's best. Yeah, composers. one of the yeah, yeah, little known, right? Along yeah. with Prince and Bob Dylan, Bach. Yeah, yeah, he was. Yeah. Um, one of the uh, uh, cities that you talk about as well is Ziklag, yeah. Yeah. where David goes down yes. to uh, in Fane's. Akish um, gives him yeah. this. Yeah, who's the king of Gath gives him this. Uh, this town. Yeah, so it's interesting because the next person I'm going to interview yeah. is Cynthia yeah. um, Schaefer Elliott, and she's done excavations at Tel Halif. Yeah, right. And, um, which is one candidate for Ziklag, but you opt for Tel Sarah, right? Yeah, I do. Sarah. And I do in a very messy, sort of non committal way because it's really hard. So for me, it's more important that these stories are rooting David somewhere in this area of Tel Sarah, Tel Halif, right? I'm not, uh, not going to stake my scholarly career on one location. Um, but the fact that these, you know, these memories, if you will, are locating David there is, is fascinating because after that period in time, you, you're not going to find a lot of Philistine presence in these areas or quote unquote Philistine material culture in these. Yeah. Right. Um, so that's one more piece of this idea that it there's fits some, in the there, there are some yeah. memories of the Iron Age that are, yeah, are being right. preserved. Yeah. Now you also talk about things forgotten. Yes. Right. So a key there, there, of there's this. a, and you point this out, there's a classic maxim that yeah. absence of evidence is not right. evidence of absence. Yeah. Right. Old archaeological but, maxim. But then you devote a whole chapter to <laughs> absence of Dude, evidence. Precisely that. Yeah. Um, and you're saying there are a number of sites that are, were prominent in the Iron Age. They're not just sort of minor little off the, off the road sites. These are, these are major sites destroyed um, prior to scribalism in Israel and not apparently not remembered. Why is some stuff remembered and some stuff forgotten? What, yeah, right. You, so this is really, I mean, it, it, it's almost impossible to answer, but I'd like to hear you yeah, reflect right. on that. So I think this is really important for my project. What I'm not trying to do is, is this move where I'm going to find early material and beat back all the people who think that the Bible is not historical, right? That's not my interest. I have no interest in that. Um, I'm interested in a spectrum of, of a, a dynamic kind of character of memory where some things I think are preserved. And I think some things get, you know, I have a chapter on entangled memory where you find you know, uh, with, with the Zikleg stuff as well, um, some memories get uh, reappropriated over time and you get a mixture of, of things, so to speak. And then you find phenomena that I think are forgotten, like um, Kirbe Khafa, Tel Kassil, Tel Rehov, um, a number of really important sites. You got all those listeners? Yeah, exactly, right? Um, that are prominent early Iron Age sites that it doesn't seem that the Bible is referring to any of these sites. And they're contemporaneous with Saul and David and so on and so forth. Um, and if you're walking around that time period, you would be mentioning these sites, I think. They're, they're really important. 
And so the question is, why is no reference to these sites, right? Why are they, you know, my, my language forgotten? I think they were destroyed early. And because they were destroyed early, before prose writing really develops, and because it's not like Gath, which is, I think, uh, attached to David in particular ways and, and, you know, and has a connection with Jerusalem, because of the geography of these sites and because they're destroyed early on, we don't find them in the Bible, which tells me that these biblical stories are being written down a little bit later in time and that some of the memories, so to speak, are being forgotten in those, in that, in those generations. Yeah. So, um, and then from, from the point of view of composing history about, or composing these stories about a, a time in the past, um, so, so you put a lot of stock then in, in the, the way that the land would have been the, maybe even a more determinant factor in preserving memories than, say, oral traditions? Or how would you kind of rank those two in relation to each other? Sure. Well, I think oral traditions are... I don't know if ranking's the right question, but just the... Oh, no, yeah, right. Yeah. Um, well, I think oral traditions are playing off of the, the physical phenomena that folks are seeing, right? I mean, the question is, in a world in which there are no books, in a world in which you can't walk into museums... How do you experience the past? How do you know the past, right? And for me, I think the one place we have to turn to are these places because the places hold the ruins of, of certain locations, right? And sometimes towns are built atop the ruins, right? And so there you have a tangible kind of connection with the past. Um, so for me, if we want to understand how the biblical authors are talking about the past and ancient Israel, um, these places are really, really important and um, lend themselves to thinking about this in creative ways um, and disassociating ourselves from modern kind of ideas of book culture. And so oral tradition still plays in that, right? Um, but oral tradition is going to be interacting with these places and I think being, uh, you know, strengthened and, and buttressed mm-hmm. by these locations. Yeah, back to the idea of land-assisted oral tradition, right? <laughs> yeah, nice, I like that. Um, so I'm trying to think, though, You've got Gath that's remembered, although it was destroyed early, but other sites forgotten, and they were destroyed early. Is it just that Gath was staring you in the face? It's so hard to avoid, but yet you remember Ziklag. Like, is there a is there a bit of just ambiguity there? Where yeah, I think some there's some st- ambiguity there. I think that's absolutely <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, that goes yeah. without saying. Right? <laughs> that goes without saying. Uh, um, but how do you how do you balance those two yeah. things? I think they're connected with David. Yeah. Um, that's my short answer. Okay. Um, whereas other locations are not. And so, uh, okay. right, so we have these kind of court traditions about David, and he's at certain locations, and these locations, right, yeah, right. Are still can be experienced in certain ways. Right, so you're walking by the tell with your kids, and you're like, hey, right. kids, right. David slept here. Right? <laughs> There's a fascinating passage <laughs> in Nehemiah, just to let, on a tangent. Yeah. I think it's Nehemiah 12, where they say, and we were walking about, and we, went, we walked by the, the house of David. Oh. Right, um, as they're walking along the walls in, in Nehemiah, and it's like, well, wait a second, a house of David would have been like 700 years old at this point in time. That's right? fascinating. I don't know what they saw, but they think they or they're claiming that they're walking by a house of David. Right? Wow. So your point is I actually well taken. That. Yeah. yeah, that maybe they actually were going by these. Well, and, and you point out in your book too that that there's a tradition preserved in Deuteronomy and Joshua of setting up things so that future generations can ask about them and then you can tell your kids and that's how things are passed on. So so the physical being a memory yeah. aid is baked into the Bible Absolutely. itself. Right. It's really important for the biblical authors. Yeah. yeah. So the question is what did they see and what did yeah. what are they experiencing? Yeah. So you've um, put a lot of time into uh, uh, a, a kind of history of the, the role of place in history. Yeah. Where are you going with your next project? Yeah. Um, so I'm working on a book on, on ruins right now. Um, 
and uh, and they're taking up some of the questions that the first two books are also thinking about. But you know, it's driven by just one really simple question. And that question I mentioned this to Matt earlier is, why did no one in ancient Israel excavate? Um, why didn't they dig beneath their feet and 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 think about the material culture that they would find? Because they're very interested in the past. Obviously, the biblical writings are saturated with an interest and in a fascination with the past, and yet no one ever digs beneath the ground. Um, and we do. And the question is, why do we? And when, when did we start being interested in, in that question? And I think if we can answer that question, I, you know, the question is, why do we dig and why didn't they dig? Um, it's going to tell us a lot about ourselves, too. Um, and for me, this is, you know, the larger kind of project is wrestling with what are we doing when we think about the past? And that tends to be history. And what were the biblical authors doing when they thought about the past, which I don't think was history in the modern sense, obviously. Um, and then how do we read these texts in light of this, this, uh, this gap between the two? Right? So when you say they weren't doing history in the modern sense, yeah. like, I know we've danced around this, sure. but what, what are they doing right. there? That's the question. That's yeah. the question. Okay, Matt, right? so that's, that's, that's the And so for book. me, this is where memory helps out, right? Yeah. Because the biblical writers talk about memory. They say that what they're doing is remembering. Yeah. So it's an indigenous category, right? Um, I draw on Foucault and say, you know, it's, we can think of this like as, a, as an episteme, or, you know, a body of knowledge that is present in the ancient world. Um, and of course, we still remember today, but today, you know, we have professional historians who think about these questions according to evidence and particular, you know, scholarly practices that didn't exist in the ancient world. Um, and we... You know, we court a lot of significance to into those historical answers, right? And so, for me, the question is, why do we do history in this way? And, and how do we read text in which that's not present? And, you know, this is the question that's haunted biblical studies and theology for 200 years now, right? Um, and I'm trying to come at it from a particular direction, right? Um, now, another piece of that is that they have religious aims in yeah, remembering the past. Right. And, and so, it's not just to recount the past, yeah. but it's so that we can know Yahweh Exactly, right. Now. Yeah. So. And history is by nature a secular discipline, right? Even Von Ranka, who is, you know, was very devout in his own way, history is still a, a secular discipline, right? And so this is the hard part for biblical studies and theology. On the one hand, you have folks who come out of faith communities, right, obviously, um, who are studying these texts, but who are using historical critical methods that are obviously secular. Yeah, yeah we had an episode on that recently, Yeah, actually. nice, right? Um, um, yeah. And, uh, you know, I... You know, I went to I went to Princeton and, and and Bart looms large there, and I took a class in Bart's theology and his and his commentary on Romans, right? This beautiful commentary on Romans, um, where Bart is basically trying to make Romans speak to us today, right? And he does use some historical critical stuff in moments, but it can be sporadic, and that's fascinating because I want to do that at times. My problem is I can't <laughs> because I have all this his- history, right? And I just can't. You know, I use a lot of the uh, philosopher Paul Ricoeur, and he talks about the long detour in his philosophy. And if you read Ricoeur, it's, you know, it's very hard at times because he makes a point, and 400 pi- pages later, he finally gets to it, right? <laughs> and because he's making these long detours. Yeah, and yeah. the reason he does that is because he says you can't get from A to B in a straight line. There's too many obstacles, yeah, too many yeah. hurdles. Yeah, we can't, we can't pretend that those we hurdles are We can't pretend aren't that there. they're not there. Yeah. And I'm not saying Bart's pretending. Bart's so sophisticated, and he's a genius. But for me, at least, I have all these hurdles, and... Those hurdles are constructed in the historicism of the 19th and 20th centuries. And I'm a product of that. I live during this time. I can't ignore that. And for me, I'm trying to find my way, so to speak, right? Um, as one who is late born, right? One who's a product of, of late modernity. And I don't know the answer to it. Yeah, well, 
uh, all the best to you as you pursue that in answer <laughs> to that question in yeah. your third book. So, uh, Dan, thanks so much for taking the time hey, to speak you. with OnScript. It's been a lot of fun. Hey, I appreciate it, man. Thanks. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just two or five dollars per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.